Would you like me to seduce you? That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. Of all the gin joints and all the towns in all the world, he walks in a mind. Why do you always Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Hey guys, welcome to the Celluloid Fiends podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in. We really appreciate it. If you want to follow us, you can follow us at Celluloid Fiends on Twitter and Facebook, as well as Celluloid Fiends Pod on Instagram. And if you haven't already done so, head over to the iTunes store and go ahead and leave us a rating as well as a review because that helps us out quite a lot. And go ahead and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are available because we're on all the apps. If you want to follow me, your host, uh, Mo Long, you can check me out at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram. And I write about film over at cupofmo.com. And I write about tech over at techuplife.com. And as always in the studio tonight, I have with me. Hey, celluloid fiends. It's Wes Clifton. Uh, I'm a writer. I'm a musician and I am a grindhouse gumshoe. Uh, if you want to check out my fiction writing, you can check me out at wdclifton.wordpress.com. And if you'd like to check me out on social media, I'm on Instagram at Cliff Weston. Uh, and it is excellent, Wes, to be back in the studio uh, together again. Because uh, we had a little bit of a break. Um, you know, <laughs> We both got wrapped up doing other things and it just we had to just take a little a little break. But we're we're back. But don't call it a comeback. Well, no, uh, I would never dare. <laughs> so, what have you, uh, you know, in our little mini hiatus, what have you been uh, watching and uh, listening to and reading lately? Yeah. Oh, man. If you include reading, we're going to be in trouble. Um, so, I, um, let's see. Well, we've been gone for so long that I am not going to include everything that I've watched. But I will say um, on Halloween, I caught up with a movie I'd been trying to watch for a while. Uh, I bought it on VHS from uh, from Lunch Meat VHS, uh, a movie called The Ranger, which was a uh, kind of a punk rock, low budget, independent slasher movie. Uh, and I really liked that. I mean, you know, pretty much anything with like a punk rock sensibility, especially like a, a low budget slasher movie is going to get my attention. And then you put it on VHS, baby, you got yourself a good time. Uh, so I, that was a fun movie. And then I watched Pineapple Express, which I hadn't seen in forever. I mean, like probably a decade and just something drew me to want to watch it again and just really, really loved it. I'd forgotten how funny and good Pineapple Express was. So that was awesome to revisit and kind of has me wanting to revisit some other uh, Seth Rogen flicks. And then confession. Yeah, I've never seen it, dude. You really got it. Like I was just, you know, like I've never. So it's funny. I was talking to somebody the other day and I said, I think it's probably one of the best like stoner comedies of all time. I've never even I've never tried marijuana or anything like that. So I'm the furthest thing from a stoner. But just, you know, I I can get down with a really good stoner comedy. And I think that Pineapple Express is one of the best. Plus, it's like a an action comedy, which is awesome. It's really good. It's really funny. And you know, Franco and Rogan are both really great. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's awesome. I would recommend it. I'll add it to my list. Nice. And then I caught up with a movie that I really want to uh, push to people. Uh, I say caught up. I caught up with it again. I've watched it before. Um, it was a, It's a movie called Hostiles. Uh, it came out a few years ago. It's a Western, which we all know I love Westerns. Uh, it stars Christian Bale. Uh, is He's great in it. It's about this... Uh, in you know post-civil war it's just after the civil war a few years and actually i think it's several years after the civil war but he's a an army captain and he's retiring and he's basically spent his whole career fighting indians and he's got this like deep hatred for the indians and and his final mission he gets tasked to lead this indian chief who's dying of cancer who they have a, a bit of a history together uh, he gets tasked to lead him and his family across a couple different states and territories back to his uh, traditional homeland so he can die uh, in the land of his uh, people. 
and uh it's just a really great movie obviously there's a lot of tension there and it's uh i just thought it was just really good it's very grim pretty dark uh but just a great western and christian bale uh, is awesome in it of course and so uh hostiles it's on netflix right now recent pickups uh not much, really. I haven't picked up much of anything. I did digitally purchase uh, this Showtime miniseries that came out, I think, last year called The Comey Rule, which was based on James Comey's book, uh, A Higher Loyalty. And uh, that was really interesting. I mean, it's super long, obviously, because it's, well, it's two episodes, but they're like two and a half hour episodes, uh, all about basically Jim Comey and his doings having to do with the 2016 election and after. I might have to check that one out. Really good. Jeff Daniels as Jim Comey. Oh, yeah. Good, uh, good casting choice right there. Yeah, yeah. It was really great and well acted. I can't remember the actor's name who played Trump in it, but uh, he did a really great job. And uh, he is the guy who plays uh, William Wallace's childhood friend in Braveheart. I hate that I can't remember that actor's name right now. Um. So I have uh, I've been trying to kind of get into the noir vimber spirit a little bit. So recently I've been watching some different uh, noir and neo-noir and kind of crime films. Uh, I watched Wild Things. Uh, I watched Double Jeopardy. I watched The Bone Collector. And, and on the, oh, I watched Cruel Intentions, which was excellent. Oh. I hadn't seen that one before. Uh, and then on the TV show side, I recently started The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, which I've absolutely been in love with. I'm only a few episodes in, but I, re- I just am a sucker for that kind of slow burn yeah. 70s style. And it's it's a very pleasant mixture of uh, kind of that older 70s style of, of filmmaking, but also kind of a lot of newer techniques. And it just feels very fresh. And I like the way that it bounces very seamlessly back and forth between the past and the present and kind of gives you a little bit more perspective each time. It's kind of like peeling an onion where each episode you kind of take another layer off and kind of learn a little bit more about what actually happened and begin to form kind of a picture of the unified whole. Yeah, I, as we talked about earlier, I also recently watched Haunting of Hill House, and I, I also very much enjoyed it. And we were saying it made me kind of want to go back and revisit the old um, movie, The Haunting. And, you know, while you're at it, you might as well watch the renowned remake yeah. from 1999 with Liam Neeson. Yeah, listeners, he's giving me a hard time because I was telling him that I actually was did not enjoy that remake as much as I'm a fan of Liam Neeson. Uh but it's been a long time since I watched it and I was I was a much harsher critic uh in my in my younger days, so maybe I will go back and revisit it and who knows. Uh maybe I will have come around to it. And hopefully Liam Neeson does not listen to this episode because if he does, he will find you. Oh. He will hunt you down. No, he can listen if he wants because it's well known. I'm a huge Liam Neeson fan. I just, you know, I wasn't a big fan of that one. And let's be honest, I'm not a big fan of uh, of the Star Wars prequels. Sorry, listen. Oh, I don't, I don't think anyone is a fan of the Star Wars prequels. I know some. I know some. Uh, I know. I guess, I guess maybe the guy who got the full back tattoo of Jar Jar Banks. I don't know what you're talking about, and I don't know that I want to. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> And now, our feature presentation. And tonight, we are talking about the 1948 noir classic, He Walked by Night. This was directed by Alfred L. Worker, and it had a screenplay by John C. Higgins and Crane Wilbur. It has an 86% critic rating and a 60% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, which I was actually kind of surprised a little bit about that discrepancy there. That seemed pretty large. I could see this being sort of a sort of a critical darling and maybe audiences uh, maybe not understanding as much yeah uh totally um and i think we'll i think we'll get into that a little bit because it's very much a technical masterpiece 
Um, and I couldn't find any information about the budget, although to me it seemed like it was probably a, a pretty low budget. didn't have a lot of special effects. And this movie follows uh, a Los Angeles policeman, Officer Rowlands, who is shot when he apprehends a suspicious-looking character that he suspects of burglary, and he's killed. And then this sets up detectives Chuck Jones and Marty Brennan, who have, in my mind, just kind of perfect detective names, mm-hmm. kind of quintessential mm-hmm. <laughs> detective names right there uh it sets them up they're tasked with catching the killer the mysterious roy morgan and the ruthless but incredibly ingenious roy consigns stolen electronics to shop owner paul reeves and when reeves discovers that one of morgan's gadgets is actually pilfered it's a hot item it puts the police onto Roy's trail as the LAPD scrambles to catch a deadly killer walking the streets by night and sometimes day, but mostly night. Oh, that's all oh, the title. <laughs> uh, so I had seen this one before, but this was your first time watching it. It was, in fact. And when you rec- like. You yeah, when you chose it, this is a mo pick. Uh, when when you picked it, I had I was like, man, I don't think I've ever even heard of that movie before. But as soon as it came on, and I saw like the first few minutes of it, I was like, this has a very familiar uh, vibe to it. And then when I saw Jack Webb's name in the opening credits, I texted you immediately, and I was like, Jack Webb. Uh, and I so then it clicked with me what this movie was, and. Uh, as, as you and I were saying a little bit earlier, I'm a, I got on a big dragnet kick a few years back. Uh, I was getting super into like police procedurals and obviously dragnet's kind of the granddaddy of those. And uh, I was really into listening to podcasts of the old dragnet radio show actually is what I was super into. And, uh, and I, so I read about this when I was kind of on a Jack Webb kick. Yeah. Cause this was the, film that actually inspired dragnet the dragnet radio program actually came out a a year after this yeah and while jack webb was working on he walked by night there was a police technical advisor uh, detective sergeant marty Wynn, and webb and Wynn had this conversation and that kind of spawned the radio program and eventual tv series uh dragnet which i thought was just such a cool uh, little anecdote yeah. um, and interestingly kind of kind of what you were saying there i don't i think he walked by night is a a famous noir film but it also seems at the same time somewhat under the radar yeah uh, and i think that kind of gets back to that kind of critic and audience reception discrepancy i think like a lot of uh you know big film buffs or, or film critics know this film, but I don't think it's like as widely talked about as other noir films like double indemnity or, or Chinatown. Yeah. And there's not a ton about it. Like I was doing, trying to do a little research and there's not a ton of information about it on the internet either. I mean, just, you know, little bits here and there. Uh, I noticed there was a, there was a, what looks like a pretty sweet Blu-ray on Amazon. You can get, they had like some commentary and special features. So that would be cool to check out to find a little more about this movie. But just information wise, I, kind of scarce online. Yeah, it's it's pretty bare bones. Uh, I mean, there there's definitely some information out there to kind of read up uh, on and and kind of learn about how it inspired uh, Dragnet, but and the police procedural in general. But yeah, no, it just I don't know. I I was really surprised while putting together the show notes. I figured there would kind of be more analysis or more buzz about this, uh, and it, there's strangely just not. Um, but I picked this because it's uh, we're recording this in November, and I just wanted to do a a, a noir vember pick. I was really torn about doing like a neo noir film versus a classic one. I just wanted to go with like a straight classic and one that uh, that I think deserves a little bit more attention. Yeah. Yeah, this was a this was a good choice, man. I, I've been, it's kind of like one that's been well, I didn't realize it until we started watching it. But it's one that has been on my radar that I'd like to I would want to see for quite some time. So it was great to be able to check this off the list. I'm glad you picked it. Yeah, 
Uh, and I know we're we're actually both pretty uh, pretty big Law and Order fans. Oh yes, I think uh, the word I would use is I'm obsessed with Law and Order, uh, and there's, that's no lie. Uh, so yeah, um, I, this I feel like you know if you enjoy Law and Order, even kind of there's this craze about uh, true crime that that. Yep happen i feel like that hit a couple years ago and it's just yeah. it's still trucking uh but all of these subgenres, i feel like really owe a debt of gratitude to he walked by night because it, it really yeah. kind of pop it popularized that um and i think one of the ways that it uh accomplishes that so well and and one of the reasons it set up that subgenre for success was the way that it kind of fused this very cut and dry technical format with a very exciting and and high tension narrative yeah yeah i think so too and i was kind of curious what you thought actually about the format kind of with the with the voiceover and kind of that onus on the technical investigative techniques and also the film's ability to maintain tension I mean, I really enjoyed it. Like we said earlier, you were talking about Law and Order, and I mean, obviously, I thought my 2020 has been produced by Dick Wolf. Like, I, uh, I I'm a, <laughs> if I told people the amount of Law and Order I've watched this year, and I mean, that's rewatching most of it because I am obsessed with Law and Order. Like, I have what? Uh, I have every season of Criminal Intent on DVD. I have, I think, twelve or thirteen seasons of the original series on DVD. I am one of the few people you know who's seen Law and Order Trial by Jury, Law and Order Los Angeles, Law and Order True Crime. I love Law and Order. Um, so yeah, I love that kind of police procedural thing. This movie is is really dragnet. I mean, obviously it's it's the precursor, sort of the progenitor of dragnet, but uh so I loved it. I mean, I, I love Dragnet and I love this. It's a very similar feel. Uh, I'm a sucker for voiceover anyway, uh, which gets me into a lot of arguments when you talk about, uh, say, like Blade Runner or something like that. But I, I like I like voiceover. Uh, so I thought it was great. I, I really liked it was just kind of it was neat. You know what I mean? Like I, I'd seen several several other noir films that have a very different feel than this a lot of them are very character driven a lot of them you know they they focus more on the people and kind of what's going on in the hearts of people whereas this one was interesting because it was shot in a very noir style but the plot was very focused on the specifics of police work of doing police work, how police catch the bad guy. Uh, and really, interestingly, the main character is the villain. I mean, they spend more focus on him than they do on any other character. Um, but I think maybe I'm wandering off off track. I love police procedurals as a genre. And like you said, this is, I mean, I can't say for sure this was the first police procedural, but I know it was a really early one that kind of set the framework for Dragnet and many other things that would follow. So I loved it is what I'm getting at. I liked it a lot. Yeah, I don't know. I also don't know if it was the first police procedural. I would guess it probably wasn't, but I think it was the most influential early police procedural and really kind of set the, uh, the tone for and kind of shaped later procedurals like of course dragnet uh Mm -hmm. and yeah i I think it just kind of kick-started that craze uh i'm glad you brought up the kind of character driven elements of most noir films because that's something i really want to talk about uh this has a very bare bones yes set up when it comes to the characters it's it's a super simple but very effective uh, story and like you were saying uh, kind of the character that you learn the most about is is the villain but even him you don't really fully understand his character a lot or get much information on him and it left me wanting to know a little bit more about some of the characters particularly Roy uh, and I'm, I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are like do you think this uh, it was the perfect amount of backstory do you think it could have been more character driven yeah you know i've got mixed feelings uh i've got mixed feelings because i realized you know part way through i was like i don't even really i don't even know the the police officers names 
Like I know they had names and you said them earlier and they were kind of standard cop names, but I was most of the way through the film and I was like, these are the heroes of the movie. I can't even remember their names right now. Um, so there was a part of me that thought I would like to know more and have more character, but the extreme focus on the sort of narrative device of police procedure is what makes this movie different. You know what I mean? This movie isn't just like this movie isn't a clone of, of the Maltese Falcon. Uh, this movie feels different. Um, and I think that a lot of that is due to the extreme and intentional reliance on police procedure and the, the just police work itself over characterization. I mean, you could tell that that was an intentional choice that the filmmakers made. And I think it's what makes this movie unique. So I'm torn on that because in a way, yeah, I mean, for most films, I'm going to want a little more characterization. I'm going to want a little more meat on the bones, but it just made for a kind of a unique experience. So I, I liked it. Yeah, I thought it worked. I thought it worked very well. Uh, it's part of me did kind of yearn for a little bit more, especially just, uh, and I think this part was intentional, but it really sets Roy up as a very intriguing character and kind of a villain that you don't agree with his choices, but you're very fascinated with him and, and kind of why he makes his choices. Because one thing that I couldn't quite figure out was what his motivation f- was for being a criminal, because it, it when he got it, uh, he'd been working in a police station yeah. And then he was drafted and went off to the war. And when he got back, he was offered his old job back and he turned it down so that he could steal electronics and uh, yeah, and rent these out through Dude. the shop owner. And I was thinking, like, can that be more lucrative? Uh, that doesn't it seems like a less steady paycheck. Yo, he Roy's a weirdo. Like, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> up, Roy's a weirdo. Like when I found out that the reason he's like killing cops and stuff is because he wants to steal electronics and and like have his own electronics business i was like yo this dude is weird that is that is a really strange motivation for this like arch criminal that they set up for the rest that is very strange i've got to say like when i found out that that was the motivation it I thought, well, we're going to find out that it's something deeper than that eventually. He just loves electronics. He wants to be involved in electronics, and he also likes occasionally killing police officers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, one thing I, I love is just how simple that is. And even <laughs> yeah. even in its simplicity, though, it's just very creative and off the wall. Yeah, and apparently it's at least to some degree, I'm always super skeptical of based on a true story, but apparently it's at least to some degree based on an, an actual case uh, in Los Angeles. I didn't look up the all the details. I, I'm very curious to find out whether or not it was really a person who was killing people for electronics. But yeah, apparently it's at least to some degree based in reality. Yeah, it was inspired by the 1946 crime spree of Erwin Machine Gun Walker. That's a cool name. That's he he had a cooler nickname. I will say that for him. And yeah, he did. Roy Roy didn't have uh, any sort of moniker to go by. Yeah, you need one. Uh but Walker was actually captured and he was sentenced to death for first degree murder. Roy the company's computer guy Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> Roy Hot Electronics Morgan. Yeah, Roy Circuit City Morgan. Oh, uh, well, he he was going out of business. Uh, 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 oh no. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I just I, I love the documentary style. I normally yeah. I actually am am kind of split on voiceover narration. Sometimes I love it. Uh, I, you mentioned Blade Runner that it, I, it is one of my least favorite voiceovers ever. I still I to this day have never seen the full theatrical cut. Cause it's just, I, I can't do it. Uh, but yeah, I, I liked it here. Uh, and one part that I thought worked in the film's favor was kind of that low budget 
perspective because it doesn't try to use a lot of special effects, but it relies uh, just a lot on kind of strong script writing and excellent acting performances. Uh, and yeah. also just kind of the locations. Uh, a lot of them are kind of more uh, typical settings that you'd see, like someone's house or the police station. But one of my favorite segments was the in the finale when Roy goes into the sewers and there's this chase through yeah, the man. through the through the LA sewers. Yeah, it was that was beautifully shot. The the him using that flashlight and running through the sewers and, and it's like dark, but his flashlight's just skittering around all over the place. It was that was just so they were those were such beautiful shots. There was multiple shots like that, and they were gorgeous. Yeah, and I think that was another one of those moments that really kind of established that tension and, and wrote it out. Because I think if you probably looked at the runtime for that scene, it was it probably wasn't all that long, but it felt yeah. like it was just going on for forever. Because uh, I think it kind of, in a lot of ways, would kind of put you into the perspective of some of the characters and kind of make you feel... Uh, kind of some of their tension. Uh, another scene that I think was very taut was when Roy breaks into Mr. Reeves house. Yes. And accosts him. And that was actually one of my favorite scenes in the, in the film because it shows a few different things. One was how ruthless Roy was. And another was how clever he is. Yeah. Master criminal slash uh, electronics dealer. Seriously, the way he's uh, he tells uh, Reeves to uh, like shut the uh, curtains and he takes pretty much every precaution and continues to kind of outsmart the police at almost every turn. Maybe you can tell me this. Did he did Roy climb out of Mr. Reeves's back seat? Like, was he hiding in Mr. Reeves's car? I kind of somehow missed that. It seemed like he got out of Mr. Reeves's car like he'd been hiding in his back seat and rode home with him. That is what happened which okay how did he pull that off i guess he broke in i guess he broke into the car somehow i don't really know but i I, i'm assuming he broke into the car and was and was just hiding back there yeah i mean he had to have done that uh you know i guess it was maybe easier back then no car alarms yeah yeah Uh, just get a coat hanger or something um for all we know maybe reeves didn't lock his car door and that's yeah um yeah, but I thought, I, and I'll tell you um, what you just said a minute ago about putting yourself in the um, sh- the the put yourself in the shoes of the characters. They did a great job of that because they gave so much more perspective to um, Roy than a lot of films do. A lot of films don't focus as much on the villain as this as this does. But this movie kept going back and forth between scenes focused on. Roy specifically, and then scenes focused on the police. So it was almost like a split screen effect. You 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 didn't just follow the police as they as they chased Roy. You followed the police for a while as they chased Roy. Then you followed Roy as he kind of like tried to duck the police and played cat and mouse with the police. Um, so I thought that was really cool. And another thing that added to the the tenseness was how much reliance there was on action and very minimal dialogue, which you know kind of a uh, it's kind of just goes along with the no frills, no nonsense feel of the whole movie. But there was this very minimal dialogue, and it was mostly all about the action. Even the runtime itself is Super is pretty short. short. It, it it's not even an hour and twenty minutes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and of that hour and twenty minutes, probably about five minutes. I I jest, but uh, it's probably only like five minutes of dialogue. Yeah, I mean, think of how much time at the first of it they spend by being like, "This is Los Angeles," and uh, here's a little bit about Los Angeles, and then this is the this is the police, and here's a little bit about the police. Like they, which honestly, that's Dragnet would do that. Like Dragnet would start off with a wide shot of the city of Los Angeles, and he'd be like, "This is Los Angeles, the city of angels," and then he would tell a little bit about it. People come here all the time. There's three million people, and then he would kind of focus in on the police station, and that's basically exactly what this movie did. And uh, I I thought that worked really well. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I thought it was quite a lot of fun. Uh, do you feel like though it could have been a little longer, or do you, were you happy with kind of how long it was? 
Yeah, no, I don't think it could have been longer. And I, and that sounds weird to say because, like you just said a minute ago, it's really short. I want to say it's like an hour and 18 minutes long. And uh, I was just like, man, that's really short. But because of the decisions that they made... Now, if they would have added more characterization in, if we're talking about a kind of different movie where they don't make the intentional decision to focus less on character and more on, you know, the plot device of police procedure, then, yeah, it could have been a little longer. But basically what they did was just cut out all the frills and all the I hate to call characterization frills, but, you know, they cut out all the they cut it down to the skeleton intentionally to emphasize that skeleton. Like they, they, there was nothing there that didn't need to be there for the plot to move along. So I think if they would have kept the same style of not really digging into the characters and just really focusing on the, the kind of the narrative device, making it longer would have, it would have stretched too long. You would have been like, this is going on way too long as it was, they kept up a pretty frenetic pace. And I think that added to the film, but had they chosen, like we said earlier to, to throw a little more character depth and that kind of thing in there, then, then sure it could have been extended uh, to the feature length of other movies. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you, which uh, is, is kind of weird to say just because of how short it is, but yeah, I thought it, it just did an excellent job trimming away a lot of the fat and uh, it didn't, even though it was short, it didn't feel too short at all. Yeah. Uh, and while I was watching it, I never kind of felt like, oh, this movie's flying by. I just kind of uh, was really engrossed in the plot of the film. Yeah. Yeah. And with that, we're going to take a break. And then when we come back, we will keep walking by night. Oh. All units, all units in the vicinity of State Street and Santa Monica Boulevard. Proceeded once to 5057 State Street, 5057 State Street. An officer shot, code three. Precautions, too. No fingerprints, no identification, nothing definite. Except he's scientific. Knows electricity. He's inventive. Yeah. And happy on the trigger. Yeah, I got it right here. genius the way he operates. As if he were right there with us every time he'd go out after a lead. Wait a minute. He wasn't a cop. He was a radio technician right here in our dispatch office. What did you say? I'm saying he worked here in 42. And we're discussing the 1948 classic, He Walked by Night. So earlier we touched a little bit on some of the kind of police procedural elements that are in this film. And I kind of want to dig into those a little bit deeper and talk about some of the specific scenes and techniques that are are shown in here. So kind of one at the beginning early on is when the police throw out the dragnet and bring in a bunch of suspects and interview them. The dragnet. Yep. And they cast that dragnet pretty wide. And then uh, I think one of the highlight scenes was when there is a facial composite being completed. That's my favorite scene of the movie. And 
Tell me, uh, why, why was that your favorite scene? Well, like I said earlier, I'm a sucker for police procedural stuff anyway. Like, I I read a lot of detective novels, and I tend to focus on the police procedural stuff. Uh, you know, Michael Connelly is, like, my favorite current author. He writes the Harry Bosch novels. And so I love all that inner workings, showing how they actually do their work. But I just thought, like, I don't know. There was something about seeing a time... Because, you know, you watch as much law and order as I do and you pay attention to how they catch the bad guys. But then in 1948, the whole game was so different. I mean, you know, law and order, they talk about DNA and blood typing and all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and in 1948, it was just, I guess you could say the, the tactics were a little more primitive, but watching them kind of like for what the time must've been very forward thinking and high tech a way to come up with a composite sketch of the bad guy. I just thought it was really inventive. I thought that was a really uh, inventive scene. I hadn't seen anything like it before. Basically, hopefully people will have watched the film. Um, but, but we're talking about the scene when they bring in all these. So for some reason, partway through Roy decides to change up his game a little bit and he starts doing just straight up stick ups and going in like sticking up stores <laughs> and robbing the cash registers. And so they bring in all these people that Roy has held up at gunpoint um, and they bring them all in together. And I guess the thought is that when you're like in a situation like that, you're probably going to be kind of traumatized. And so you might not be able to give a totally perfect description, but if they get them all together in a room, maybe somebody will have been struck by what his eyes look like and somebody will remember what his hair looks like. And so they start taking all these slides like on a slide machine. And first they have a slide of, different people's hair and the, the witnesses say, Oh, I think it was kind of like this, but maybe a little lighter. And eventually they get the hair, right? Well, then they start putting slides of different eyes over top of that. And by the time they're done, they've done all the facial features and they have like basically a, an identical sketch of Roy. And that's how they know what he looks like. I, I don't know. Does that scene was so striking? It was very inventive. I don't know if that was a real police technique at the time, but it, uh, but it was just really cool. Yeah, I I would assume it maybe was because it seems like this film did a lot of research and even had some real world police consultants on the film yeah. to kind of serve as advisors. But I, I really have no idea. I, I tried to look up kind of when the first facial composites actually came about. Uh, I couldn't really find a ton about the actual technique. I did find that the first mechanical system, according to the very reputable source known as Wikipedia, sure. uh, Identikit came out in 1959. So previously, it probably was something like uh, these very uh, now primitive, but then very advanced uh, drawings that were done uh, of co cobbling together a bunch of different features into a unified whole. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, that this is a very worthy scene of being your favorite in the film, because if you just think about it on paper, it sounds really boring and, and kind of cut and dry, but then seeing it actually play out, it's incredibly exciting. And uh, it, I think it kind of circles back to that very dialogue driven aspect of this film where it's just a bunch of people in a room talking and most of them are sitting, uh, but they're getting really excited about each kind of piece of Roy's facial composite that is put into place, uh, begins to form this picture of who he actually is. And kind of as the characters in this are, are becoming more energetic, it makes you as the audience member, at least, for me, it did uh, get really into that scene as well. Yeah. And I mean, and then in the end, they bring Mr. Reeves in after they've already finished the whole sketch. They make him stay outside till they finish the whole sketch. And when he comes in, he's he's like, lighten the hair a little bit and, you know, shade in the eyebrows. And that's Roy. I'd know him anywhere. And so that's how they know they've got an accurate picture because Reeves has done the most, you know, business with Roy and can recognize him. I'm not really sure exactly how accurate that uh <laughs> that would have been in the real world oh yeah but I, I think that was the perfect way to kind of conclude that scene yeah yeah i mean i i don't know how accurate it would have been in the real world either but in the movie it, it works great so. 
Yeah. And then I, so I think, uh, Kenneth, to your point earlier, I think the reason that Roy switched up his technique and started sticking up the liquor stores was because the police were on to his previous operation with Reeves. And so he decided to change tactics completely because they had this profile of him as stealing electronics and renting them out. And so he, he thought if he started doing a string of liquor store robberies, they that the police would think it was a different suspect because it was a different M.O. Yeah, but at that point, I mean, at that point, it's not really contributing as far as I can tell to his uh, electronic scheme. At that point, it's just for the love of crime. It's just for, I mean, I guess I want to stick it to the cops, but at that point, you're just committing crimes just to commit them. Yeah, but I mean, I guess that's that's just kind of his, that's just kind of the enigma of Roy, right? Yeah, he loves crime. Yeah, uh, but one thing that I thought was really fascinating about about his character was just kind of, like we were talking about, it almost seems like a split screen thing where it's focusing on the cops and then Roy, but there were just these details in there, details in there, like having him uh, have a, a pet dog. Yeah, and just really... Can we just say that dog is awesome? Yeah, no, that seemed like a very sweet and, and well-behaved dog. That, that dog rules. Every time the dog was on screen, I was like, yes, the dog. Yeah, but it just it seemed like a very random little tidbit to throw in there. And it kind of humanized uh, I guess, him a little bit. Yeah, and I don't know. I don't know if it was supposed to humanize him insofar as making you sympathize for him or think of him as a compassionate character but i think it was maybe more to kind of show that criminals are still humans and yeah lead normal daily lives and i think it was just kind of supposed to be like that and and i think that's a a, actually a theme of the whole film is kind of taking police work detective work and uh, and also crime and kind of making it seem more relatable and less fantastical. Yeah, more realistic because, you know, a lot of films, I mean, just by the nature of being films, the bad guys tend to be larger than life. And in this movie, they're like, he's a dude that lives in an apartment and has a dog. You know, he's a he's a human. He's a person uh, that, you know, and anybody can go bad, I guess, is kind of the, the, the point. You know, it's it's just it's not like some kind of supervillain. He's just a, a dude who loves crime and happens to be good at it. Yeah, and and so in a lot of ways, this is very unique for a noir film. But at the same time, He Walked By Night does have a lot of noir elements. You know, particularly that it's uh, it's very crime focused. It's uh, dark in tone, kind of has a little bit of nihilism in there, especially in Roy's character. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so I'm kind of curious how you think this stacks up to other noir films and kind of what some of your favorite noir films are. Yeah. You know, noir for me, I've kind of always, my love of noir has tended towards the hard boiled detective or private eye type stories. I love Raymond Chandler, uh, you know, all those Philip Marlowe novels. Um, I like, uh, Ross McDonald, Uh, People like that who write those kind of private eye, hard-boiled detective novels. And so a lot of those, when translated into film, they became film noir. But but film noir is is bigger than just the the private eyes. So I I will say that for me, most of my experience in in noir films has been those kind of private eye movies. But uh, this movie, what made it kind of have that real noir feel for me was, was all the cinematography. Very dark. I mean, it was black and white, but very dark. Um cinematography a heavy reliance on shadows and silhouettes and then you know sometimes they would throw light in there but it was mostly just a a stark light to make the shadows more stand out more and more apparent so that kind of cinematography is what kind of really lent this to to noir but um you know to me, that's how it's it stacked up. It, it had that very noir look to it more so than than to me, the storyline itself lined up more in the police procedural and it sort of had the stylistic elements of a noir film. Uh, so what cut of this film did you watch? Like, where did you watch it? I watched it on Amazon, but there were multiple 
there were multiple versions available prime streaming. I mean, it wasn't just one, there were multiple. So I went with the one that had the poster art, like the kind of poster art that I saw everywhere I looked. Uh, and it was under the, the, like at the bottom, it said something like noir classics collection or something. It was like an hour and 18 minutes long. Yeah. So I think I may have watched that one. Um, but the reason I ask is, I as I was doing research for this, I found out two things. One, this movie is in the public domain, so you can actually download it for free and yeah, completely legally. So and then I can, then I can say, tell our I can tell our viewers it's on YouTube. Then if it's in the public domain, <laughs> it's, on, yeah. it's on YouTube. So have at it. So quick, quick PSA: if you have seen this movie, go watch it again. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. It's on a bunch of streaming sites for free and legally, or you can even download it. You can torrent it for free. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, great time to check it out. Like you, <laughs> It's free. It doesn't cost you anything. Um, but one thing I was curious about is I was doing, uh, I was looking at the Blu-ray you mentioned earlier, and some of the reviews mentioned that the transfer is actually a lot brighter. Hmm. And so I was curious if that, I'm sure it still kind of has just by nature of a being black and white uh, and B kind of being shot in a bunch of places with, uh, you know, different, different shadows. But I'm curious if it would kind of have a different look and feel to it. Yeah, probably. But those, the shadows and everything were, you know, they were stylistically done. Uh, so I, I think even if it was brighter, all that stuff, the silhouette, the heavy reliance on silhouettes and seeing people partially obscured by shadow, I think would still have the the desired effect. Yeah, but I might be picking up that Blu-ray. Oh, yeah. Sounded really interesting, and I, and it had some special features that I would have liked to have known more about this movie. Yeah. Like kind of how it was made. Yeah. I, I might have to pick that one up. Um, but kind of like you were talking about, uh, I do I do really like the way this is sort of a, a bit of a branch off of, off of noir, because it just had a bunch of kind of stereotypical noir fanfare in there, but it also, especially at the time, I think was very different than most of their noir films that were coming out, which were a lot of those uh, like kind of private eye noir films, uh, like the Maltese Falcon, stuff like that. Uh, And I I think it's, I think it's just kind of a beautiful little fusion. Uh, And then, uh which can you talk a little bit more about some of your favorite like pi noir films yeah so we're talking top noir films i gotta i gotta throw number one to the big sleep humphrey bogart uh lauren bacall the big sleep i love that movie i've seen it many times i read the novel which is great uh it just rules man i I think for me, if you want to see like a great hard-boiled private eye noir film, you need to go to The Big Sleep. That's a great starting point. I love it. Uh, Number two on my list, I am going to throw it to Motherless Brooklyn. I get on my soapbox about Motherless Brooklyn all the time. I feel like that movie got overlooked. It was my favorite film of 2019, and that's saying something because Martin Scorsese put out a mob movie in 2019, um, which I also loved. But Motherless Brooklyn was so good. Edward Norton... Uh, he plays a, uh, he's a private eye, but he's sort of a private eye's assistant and he has, um, he has Tourette's, uh, which makes it really interesting, you know, cause he, at the same time that he's like struggling through this mystery, uh, he's also struggling with his own inner battles. Um, and so I, I loved Mother's Brooklyn. It had a great feel to it. That great fifties noir feel highly recommended. Uh, I love Chinatown. Um, Chinatown's a great neo-noir film I mean surely most people have seen Chinatown it's one of the great movies a very iconic role uh, for Jack Nicholson I still need to see the sequel The Two Jakes but I love Chinatown very much number four for me I throw it to kind of an interesting movie um, Ryan Johnson's Brick starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt that is a movie that takes place in a high school around I think it's the early 2000s. It might have been late 90s, but I think it's the early 2000s. But it's it's like high schoolers, and it involves like this this mystery around uh, drugs and and somebody gets killed in the school. and And Joseph Gordon Levitt plays a, a student, but he but he 
it's written in such a way and the dialogue is written in such a way that it's a, like a hard-boiled detective story. So he takes on the role essentially of where the, the hard-boiled detective would be and, and the dialogue is very hard-boiled. It's just a really interesting movie that takes all the tropes of hard-boiled detectives and moves it to uh, early 2000s high school setting. Uh, and then number five, I hate to list another Bogart private eye movie, but I got to throw it to the Maltese Falcon. Number five is the Maltese Falcon. That movie rules, man. Uh, anybody who's seen it knows the reason why it's a classic. Once again, um, a, a really great novel as well that it's based on. Though, I do hate to leave this movie out because of how much I did enjoy Walked by, He Walked by Night. I don't think it can bump any of those out of my top five, but I did really enjoy it. How about you? What do you think? Uh, what are some of your favorite noir films? Uh, so I knew that I loved noir, but it wasn't until I sat down and started trying to make a top 10 list that I realized just how much I loved noir because I really think I could do like a top 20 <laughs> or wow. top 25 list. Uh, especially, you know, taking into account like neo-noir, which I, I still, um, you know, consider noir. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, this is in no particular order, but uh, Chinatown, I mean, it's a classic. Yeah. There's a reason that people always throw that out there as, uh, as kind of a stereotypical noir film because it's just marvelously shot and acted. Uh, incredible story. It's a masterpiece. Straight up masterpiece. Uh, I'm also going to throw in some neo-noir with Wild Things. That's one actually that I watched recently and it is very unique. It's just layer upon layer of twists at the end, which makes it so that you don't really have a full understanding of what actually happened until the end of the film. And even the credits have some little post credit scene, which fill in a few different blanks that you have that you don't, uh, of things that you don't really understand what, specifically transpired also body double might be a, a bit of an unpopular opinion but that is probably my favorite de palma film hmm. love body double it's just very tongue-in-cheek uh, and i think a very misunderstood film in a lot of ways um ida lupina's the hitchhiker oh S- super taut little film a uh, lot of replay value a double indemnity yeah Double Indemnity screenplay written by Raymond Chandler, if I'm not mistaken. Is it? I think so. And he has a oh. he has a cameo. I did not uh I did not realize he did the screenplay. But yeah, I mean Double Indemnity is just one of those movies that again, there's a reason it's a classic. Uh Bound, which was a uh I think that was a Wachowski film. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of like a, if you watch it, it's almost like a calling card for the matrix. Like you can see where a lot of those ideas came from. Uh, and it's this neo-noir film really underappreciated. Like everyone that I've talked to who has seen it loves it, but it just doesn't really get kind of talked about as much as I, I think it should. Uh, the Maltese Falcon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's interesting in, in kind of comparing our lists is I think we had this with with their zombie episode as well but we were talking about favorite zombie films and our lists were very different yeah and i think that just kind of goes to show how many noir and neo-noir films have have been made you know it's funny uh, you, we both we both said the maltese falcon but uh there's been plenty of versions of that i'm assuming we're both talking about the bogart version oh yeah okay as far as i'm concerned that is the only version yeah <laughs> uh he walked by night is also definitely up there uh, it, even though, I mean, there's just have been so many noir films created, but it's just one of the ones that to me feels very unique. And also, uh, the big Lebowski. Okay. I, I don't think a lot of people would consider it noir per se, but it definitely is. Uh, there are a lot of references. It's a subversion of noir in a lot of ways, uh, you know, where the dude, kind of assumes the unwitting role of the private investigator. And there's even that scene at the end where the an actual PI mistakes the dude for a PI and says, oh, you're just doing an incredible job. And it's kind of like a, even the title is a reference to stuff like um, The Big Sleep. 
so yeah, that's one that uh, I I really love to recognize a lot of the noir elements in that. You may have just brought me around on that film. So that's a movie that I've only ever seen once. It it didn't really catch hold to me quite like it has so many of my friends, yourself included. Uh, but talking about it in terms of like noir elements, you may have just persuaded me to go back and give that one another shot. Uh, especially coming off of a noir film, I, I think it's a, the perfect time to revisit The Big Lebowski because uh, it, it's it's one of those films I feel like that people tend to either really love or just they, they're like, I, I don't get it. I don't think it's funny. Uh, but particularly if if you're like me and you've become a scholar of The Big Lebowski and, and really studied it quite a bit, uh, looking at, at some of those ways that it, it very much uh, pays homage to as well as subverts the noir genre makes it a very fascinating and intelligent film. Okay. Well, I'm interested in that. And it also, of course, still holds the gold star, in my opinion, for greatest um, TV censorship moment when he says the TV version, (laughs) the TV version, when he's bashing up that card, he says, that's what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps and people can, they can watch the actual movie for the real line. But uh, that's uh, one of my favorite, uh, TV censor jobs. It's, you know, I think it's right up there with your mother. sews socks in hell from <laughs> the exorcist, <laughs> you know, I don't know that I'd heard that one. <laughs> oh, yep. The, the edited for TV line How is terrible. your mother's no socks in hell. How awful. Yeah. Uh, and, Again, if you want to know that original line, you can go watch the unedited version of The Exorcist, which, which you should probably do anyway. Yeah, which I highly recommend. <laughs> it's a great film. But. Uh, yeah, um, but that was that was kind of neat taking a look at our different respective noir film lists and, and kind of seeing how different they were. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then can a lot of those were older films, even, even some of the newer ones were still a bit older. Uh, but that got me thinking, I know there are some kind of modern noir films. Like you mentioned brick, which I have not seen and really need to, cause I tend to like a lot of Ryan Johnson stuff, yeah. but I was curious how you think if at all, uh, he walked by night would be different if it were remade today. Well, I feel like maybe I don't, I'm I'm not going to borrow. I don't want to borrow your thoughts, but I did look over your show notes a little bit and I feel like that's implanted in my head, but I think you were right. uh, in some of the things you were saying in there, um, if this movie were remade today, I think it would go very well. I mean, you said earlier in the podcast, true crime is all the rage these days. So I think it would certainly probably lean very hard into a true crime feel. I mean, true crime podcasts, true crime documentaries are all over the place. So since this film was made in a what I guess they called a semi-documentary tone, they would just need to update that to match the semi-documentary tone of the way documentaries feel today. Uh, you know, the harder edges would probably be much more hard. They would probably be much more bleak, violent take. But I, I think it would do very well uh, with a modern remake with sort of an updated documentary tone. Yeah, I 100% concur with you. Uh, and one of the reasons I wanted to pose that question is it was something that I started thinking about as I was watching the film. I, I wrote that down like in the middle because I was like, you know, sure, this is definitely feels like a product of the of the forties in a lot of ways. But I mean, if you took this and just updated a few different uh, aspects of it, I feel like it would be highly successful now with this true c- crime phase that is going on with, like you mentioned, the true crime podcasts and uh, you know different movies and and shows like uh, True Detective, or there was even like the mm-hmm. the OJ Simpson miniseries. Mm-hmm. Just it's just blowing up, and it doesn't look like it's going anywhere. I think the only things would be like you mentioned, kind of updating it to a kind of a modern feel. Now, do you think you would want to see a remake of this? Oh yeah. I would love that. I mean, it sounds like something I would love. I mean, if, if they did it the way we're talking about, which I mean, hey, uh, 
we we claim it. We plant a flag on this. We're going to make this film. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I, w- I would love to see that. I mean, that's right up my alley. And and you know, speaking of of how would it be updated? I mean, we've talked already about my extreme love and how you also love Law and Order. And I mean, think about how successful Law and Order SVU is. And and Law and Order is famous for their ripped from the headlines stories. Well, that's basically what this movie was just a 1948 version of ripped from the headlines storytelling. So I think that kind of thing is sort of a perennial form of entertainment that people have just always found entertaining and it, and it stays with us in different forms today. So I, I, I would love to see that. Uh, as would I, uh, oftentimes when I'm thinking, would I like to see a remake of this? The answer is usually no, but this is a, this is a very hard. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, I think it's sort of that same phenomenon that I see with a lot of 1950s sci-fi films and horror films that were then kind of remade in the 70s and 80s, like The Thing or Invasion of the Body Snatchers or The Fly, wow. where I love the original and I love the remake. And I think it's because so much time had passed that you were able to see something that was familiar, but also effectively a completely different and brand new film right and experience that same story but with a ton of updates in this massive overhaul uh and actually i recently found out that nightmare alley is being remade uh, it was a 1947 noir film that was based on a novel by william Lindsay gresham and apparently it is being directed by Guillermo del Toro. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that gave me hope that, you know, maybe this one will be remade as well. I just I think I, it would uh, it'd be pretty good. I still want Guillermo del Toro to direct uh, Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. Every time I hear Guillermo del Toro's name mentioned, I'm like, please, please make that Mountains of Madness movie you've been talking about for years. Maybe one and day. And there, there's been a pretty solid uptick, it seems, lately in... Uh, Lovecraft adaptations or just Lovecraftian films in general. Like The Void was very Lovecraftian. I, I don't know if that. you saw that one. I, have not, you, I, I think I you would love to. that. It seems like something I would enjoy. Yeah. And then uh, The Color Out of Space. Oh, yeah. That was fantastic. You know, I haven't seen that yet. Everybody, all my friends keep giving me a hard time because of how much I love both H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and Nicolas Cage. Uh, but I haven't seen it yet. You you will not be disappointed, my friend. Uh, and then uh, Underwater was another one that really surprised me. I didn't know this going in at all, but that was pretty Lovecraftian. I don't know if I've even if I know that one. It was so it's an underwater horror film, and it starred uh, Kristen Stewart in it. It mm. came out. I think it came out in twenty twenty. Okay. I need to double check. Let me double check. But if it did, it was one of the, yeah, it did. It was one of the few films that I actually got to, like new films that I actually got to see in theaters in 2020. Yeah, it was a short window for that. It it was a very short window for that. Yeah, it came out in January. Uh, But I think think you would like that one a lot. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm just like a sucker for underwater horror films like uh you know leviathan and deep star six stuff like that and underwater seemed like it kind of might be in the same vein and it was and it was lovecraftian too well i'm into that little bonus that sounds awesome yeah so you want to rate this bad boy yeah i am struggling with my rating for this movie i've been going back and forth between putting it at a four or 3.5 on a scale of zero to five. And I think I'm going to land on 3.5. This movie was really enjoyable. I really was glad to watch it. As I've said earlier, I love police procedurals. I love Dragnet. I was so excited to see Jack Webb in this because I just, I love him as Joe Friday and, and, and the Dragnet series and radio series. Um, So I think this movie was very unique uh, I mean, yeah, it's it's obviously been oft imitated later, but for its time, it was very unique, very inventive. At the same time, it was pretty bare bones, as we've said. I think that was an intentional choice, but it is what it is. It was it was pretty bare bones. Um, it lacked a lot of the you know deep characterization and things like that. 
uh, and chose to focus instead on a fast-moving, fast-paced narrative focused in you know pretty much entirely around um, police procedure. So all that together, I, I really thought it was a really inventive, great movie. I'm so glad I watched it. Really enjoyed it. Uh, it's I think it's a three point five for me. I'm going to go a little bit higher than that and go with a four. Uh, I definitely love this movie when it comes to noir and uh, appreciate so much its influence on a lot of later movies and shows like Dragnet is one of the more obvious ones and Law and Order. Uh, And I just adore how creative it was, particularly for the time, because it kind of took that different route and was more cut and dry and had that documentary feel to it. Uh, But kind of like you were mentioned, I, I do feel like it's a little bit almost at times to no frills, which feels weird because the elements that I feel like make this so unique, I also feel like are, you know, somewhat detract from it a little bit. Uh, but yeah, cause I, th- I think at times I would have almost liked to know a little bit more about Roy and, and his backstory, but yeah, overall, I think it's an, I think it's an awesome film. I do think it has a, a decent amount of replay value. And I think it's a good film that, if you're a fan of noir and you haven't seen it, you really owe it to yourself to check out. I mean, it's super short. <laughs> you're not it's really everywhere. losing a lot of time. And it's everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> you can get it everywhere. So I, I would recommend watching this one if you haven't yet, or yeah. I even think if it's been a while, it's, it's totally worth, uh, worth rewatching. A hundred percent. Yes. All right. Well, that's our show for the night. Uh, thanks again for listening. And if you haven't already done so, don't forget, head over to iTunes, leave us a rating and leave us a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to follow us, you can check us out at Celluloid Fiends on Facebook and Twitter, as well as Celluloid Fiends Pod on Instagram. You can follow me at Mitchell C. Long on Twitter and Instagram. You can read my writing on tech at techuplife.com and you can read my film reviews at copamo.com. And this is Wes Clifton signing out. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Cliff Weston. If you'd like to check out some of my fiction writing, just stop on over at my website. It's uh, wdclifton.wordpress.com. And remember, celluloid fiends, be kind and rewind. Stop it, please, for God's sake, please stop it. There's no more time. You've got to... Please, stop it. Stop it now. Turn it off. Turn it off. Stop it. 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 Stop it.